Welcome to the Gregarious Momo podcast. I am Chris Ward or Christian Chiller and as you can hear I have a bit of a cold but I thought we'd continue anyway and this is my co-host Kate Lawrence. Hello listeners. Hello. Greetings from gloomy Berlin. Spring made a look in said no I'm not quite ready. I went mm. back to bed. And, Very uh, Berlin. <laughs> well no summer's usually quite good but it hasn't really um, quite quite kicked in yet unfortunately so we have uh, a nice round episode for you today we are going to talk about the future of work or maybe the present of work and the future of work then we have an interview with a postman ceo and then we're going to wrap up with skilled migrant visas nice and controversial topic to end on there so let's get started so the first article in our topic on kind of modern work and techniques of work is from UK, uh, from the Age newspaper, an Australian newspaper from Australia. Uh, this article was entitled, The Great Hot Desking Experiment Has Failed. So maybe tell us more, Kate. Yeah, look, this was based on some research of a thousand employees that found that shared desks or the idea that you could move your desk around had failed, um, in that it had a number of problems. They were particularly looking at um, increased distrust, distractions, uncooperative behaviour and negative relationships, and also a decreased perception of support from supervisors. Um, now, there has been other surveys that have kind of backed this up, and a lot of the feelings there were things like um, people feeling a loss of identity. Um, so I guess the idea behind all this is that people like to have a space at work that's theirs. And the idea of hot desking is, is so... It kind of... There's two forms of it. One is that you go into a workplace and it's pretty much a free-for-all. You have to find somewhere to sit um for the day and that will move around so you've got nowhere to put I don't know family photos or your favorite mug or your um I don't know what your plant or whatever you like to have in an office but the other idea of hot desking is a, a slightly different one but the same kind of idea I guess where as well as that sort of move mobile desk you've also got workplaces or workspaces I should say depending on what your ac- actual activity is so maybe if you're wanting at the standing desk or somewhere else or there's a, a spot if you're making phone calls or something like that. Probably closer to what a lot of us know who work in co-working spaces. It's probably closer to that. And I might add most co-working spaces, unless you're paying for your own very own desk, um, you are in that situation of, you know, the free-for-all of the um, the fight for the, the desk and where is considered the best place to sit. I think... For me, I think there's two things here. There's always this misnomer in hot desking that all desks are equal when they're not. There's miserable places to sit and there's nice places to sit and there's always rushes for the nice places. Mm. So if you just have, if you happen to start a bit later or something, you kind of lose out and um, it just turns into a bit of a schoolroom brawl. And secondly would be, um, you know, the other kind of facet of modern work, talking about how we should be more ergonomic and things like that. And everyone's different. Uh, maybe you need a special chair. Mm. Uh, maybe you don't want a chair. Maybe it's as you were saying. And if you always have to change all that, changing workplace is actually not a workspace. <laughs> maybe also workplace is not a bad thing no, for you. No, not at all. But maybe you have certain requirements and stuff like that. I don't know. I, 
there's the there's the factor of what we do of flexible working, hmm. but often these hot desks tend to be in very corporate workplaces where it's almost like you terminal into a server, you have a what they call a thin client computer, like it's almost kind of saying who you are, what you sit, what hardware you need is all a bit irrelevant. You're doing such a generic job, it doesn't matter where you go. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it's a good one. I mean, I know in jobs I've had, it's been an issue. Like, for example, when I've worked at universities, um, I was always lucky to have either a, an office with only one or two people or alternatively a um, my own office because I saw students in a for very confidential matters which required, you know, the closed door and complete confidentiality because you're dealing with people in crisis and things like that. Um, but, you know, when I would visit other people in the university, colleagues, they would not only have the shared office but they'd have the cubicles, the shared cubicles. So you were literally on a desk with people sitting on either side of it, so facing each other, which I always thought a really odd dynamic. And it was always quite uncomfortable when you'd go in there and you had sort of a student meet with you and you'd be like, well can we have a, a meeting space to go and talk in because we don't want to sit in this room no, with someone else. I think there's else. definitely certain roles where public workspaces don't work. And and the other thing I'd note, because working in a, um, a co-working space here in Berlin, I still note that the old tradition of German people that, you know, the joke in... Um, in Europe is that German people will go on holidays to somewhere warm and sunny and they'll leave their towel at a um, the ideal, um, what do you call them, deck chairs or lounge chair, whatever, banana yeah. lounge. Um, they indeed do the same in um, co-working spaces. So people will get there super early. Well, and I went for an down. interview with that same co-working space yes. and they said, don't don't save spaces, but everybody does Everybody it. does it. And, um, you know, even if you go out for a phone call, you'll leave your stuff there to, yeah. to mark your territory. Well, that's a bit different. I mean, there's, there's going out for five <laughs> minutes, there's going out for three hours. No, no, <laughs> yeah, so it's a funny one. I mean, pe- people still have their point of culture, yeah. um, the way they, you know, want to mark a space and where they want to sit and why. And, you know, and I think ergonomics have a lot to do with it as well because we know most office buildings, are very, particularly those that are older, are quite poorly designed in regard to things like optimal lighting, um, warmth or cool, depending on the weather. Does it have natural light? Does it have windows? Things like that. Um, I know I remember being in one office where the it was a large, you know, open space that had been put into um, subdividing walls, I guess you'd call them, little offices. And it was such that the the poor regulation of the temperature was such that if you sat in one, one room, you would be wearing a T-shirt and shorts almost, but the person next door would have gloves on. Mm. It's so cold. So I think um, there's a lot of reasons why this idea of having, you know, the hot desking or the activity-based workstations for people that, you know, are in the same job every day where they do the same thing, um, particularly working for an employer, they do see it as very um, very negative and very... Um, you know, it creates an environment of, of competition where you're having to fight for where to sit, which is a little bit ludicrous. And I think the other thing I've noticed when people discuss this issue is that of, well, where, do the, where does management sit? Do they all have a nice, cushy place where they've got closed doors um, at, the, at their will or they can even have a nap if they want? I think it or, depends on the workplace. Or are they it? sharing yeah. the space? I mean, if mm. they're sh- and is that a plus or a negative? Can you sp- speak freely if your boss is <laughs> sitting opposite Can I look at cat videos all day well, with yes. impunity? Yes. If my boss is looking. Very important questions, yeah. listeners, you know, someone like me. Okay. <laughs> so... For our next topic, uh, 
Douglas Copeland was in Berlin mm. last week, and I don't know how we missed that completely. Well, he was it... speaking at, strangely, an event from Konica Milolta, the camera company. That's what I thought it was, yeah. Um, and I had not heard of it, and he was here last week, which is super annoying because it would have been nice to go and see this. I think this it might have been a, um, a private, an, an insider yeah. event, which but is common in Berlin. If you don't know Douglas Copeland, then he's an author. His most famous works are things like Generation X, J-Pod, Microsurfs, uh, but also a lot of other, like Girlfriend in a Coma and a lot of other books. I've, I've read, I think we've both read quite a lot of his books. They tend to veer between kind of very Americanized pop culture, although he's actually Canadian, isn't yeah, he? Is Which he? is interesting. He's okay. actually Canadian. Okay. Um, this kind of Ameri- North Americanized, shall we say, uh, pop culture references or the kind of um, crazy workplace stuff. I mean, it, actually, J-Pod, Generation X and Microsoft are all actually quite old now. Yeah. They're probably nearly 20 years old well, as books. So I just wanted to add to that. I mean, the fact he's got a book by the name Gen X... He, he's considered and Microsoft when Microsoft were considered more relevant. Yeah. So. He's considered the person that came up with the the, the title mm. for that generation. I, and I'm a Gen Xer myself, so um, you know, I have a lot to owe to Douglas Copeland, I guess, but for my identity. This isn't necessarily <laughs> about Douglas Copeland. No, this no. is actually about something he said, yes. and it kind of fee, feel fits nicely into what we were just talking about before. Um, and we have talked about it a few times, and ties in a little bit to the. Uh, Digital Nomad article that I mentioned in our episode last week that is still available on Invato. Yeah. About, so the, the, the sort of the headline is The 9 to 5 is Barbaric, where he basically talks about how the flexibility of work, uh, the kind of job that he has as a writer and a speaker of uh, the flexibility of work and picking when suits you best and things like that mm-hmm. is a much more suitable way of working. Mm. Um for him and for certain types of people. I think that's the first caveat we have to introduce. And that's technology. It is not a new mantra at all, but that new technology facilitates this far better than it ever used to, again, with certain sorts of jobs. Um, And that the tradition of the Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, is not only becoming increasingly irrelevant, but it's actually becoming increasingly barbaric, which is a strong word, but, uh, yeah... I've got a few viewpoints on this, but let's let's hear from you first, Kate. Yeah, I mean, I've been in a position where I've done the nine to five and I've also done the flexi time, work when you want, um, in that I've been in positions where I've created my own workplace or work jobs, if you like, um, with, with, you know, some deadlines set by me, some set by other people for at least 10 years. So I've seen both sides of the coin and... Look, I, I think first, it, it of course, it depends on the role. If you're working in a shop, for example, the shop has to be open certain times. Although this is a case in point, I would add, I think some of these notions of when um, we want things to be accessible are changing and have changed, particularly for younger generations. For example, um, the fact that yesterday you were able to get dry cleaning picked up remotely on a, on a Saturday... Mm. Before the shops even opened. Yeah, the shops weren't open. But yeah. Um, and then, you know, to give you an example here in Berlin, uh, which is a little different to, to some other countries. A little behind in some cases. On some of this. Yeah. Or differently, differently. No, no, different, I'd say. Yeah. Well, it, on average here, places open, like the opening time is a little later. It could be, say, 10 o'clock It's actually 11. common in Europe. Italy is the same as yeah. well, I remember. UK and Australia tend to be a little uh, behind, actually, with and that. 
often closing would be somewhere between seven and nine. Yeah. But conversely, on the Sundays, nothing is open. Yeah. With the exception of bakeries and florists and some bars. But there is also that very strong concept here of the Feierabend or the, the oh, holiday yes. afternoon. Yes. And still, even in Berlin, if I say to people, I'm working on the weekend, they look, why? Yes. And my response was, why not? And they look at you like, yeah, fair point. But it, it still is this very kind of time box thing. Is yeah. One does not work on the weekend. Yeah, it's, I, yeah, I get people quite shocked because I work evenings quite a lot. By, and by choice, I might add, you know, I don't have to do this. I could get up super early and do my interviews then. But if I'm talking to people in um, the other side of the world, like people in, in New York or San Fran or something like that, particularly the West Coast, um, you know, a good time for them is their morning and my evening. Um, I could do the opposite, of course, but I'm not a morning person. And they'd have to put up with me squeaking on the phone and croaking and <laughs> not sounding terribly cognizant. But, so this, okay, so this is kind of, I mean, what he says, he's preaching to the converted in yeah. some respects. He's, his audience is likely to be uh, digital types, yeah. uh, Gen Xs, millennials, etc. And we obviously fit into that bracket quite mm. neatly. But mm. I think my issue with this kind of conversation is that often it uh, assumes a bit of a, a privilege of yes. people that are able to work in those sorts oh, of environments. Oh, I agree entirely. Um, and there's still a lot of work that, A, has to be in a particular location. Absolutely. Um, for the foreseeable future, serving in cafes, working in hospitals, being a police person, et cetera, et cetera. You have to kind of be in a particular place to do that. You can't do that remotely yet. <laughs> um Kate is waving frantically at me. She has something to add to that. I do, I do. This is quite a little little side note. It's quite a funny story. Um, a very quick one. Uh, we've spoken quite a bit before about the idea of um, digital health and remote health, the idea that you could talk to someone using um, telemedicine. Telemedicine is not new. but No. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what's happened is that you sort of general practitioners or your local doctors that have been trialling it, I think it was in America, I'll send, I'll give us a link to the story, have discovered that people are using it and they're flashing and um, showing their willies <laughs> to the doctors. Aren't they supposed to? Um, <laughs> excuse me? Telemedicine, I mean. We're not talking about like people's pen- penis health or something here. We're talking okay. about like people with other health complaints and they're getting on it and they're it was, and all the all the kind of people that have been proposing this idea of the you know the the flexible remote workplace in the terms of the telehealth were saying that no one anticipated that this would happen. Everyone's a little bit shocked, and it's quite funny oh to to observe. Like, give eesh. someone an opportunity to show their penis to someone else, and they take it. Seems and to be the unfortunate. Pa- and they're paying for the privilege. Am I might Like, really? Oh, anyway, okay, that was a <laughs> anyway, slight tangent, but yes, but, but a funny one. And I, I sort of worry about this because there's still a lot of people who don't work in these sorts of workplaces. Yeah. Places, and there is this sort of often um, we exist in a bit of a bubble. Yeah. Um, I'd be interested to know what people who are tradespeople or um, workers on building sites and things like that, mm. how, how they would react to a post like this because their work has not been affected that much yet. Or, or people that work nights because that's when you have to do certain things. Like if you're a baker, you have to get up at mm. you know 2 a.m. or whatever to have the bread ready for the morning. Like, there's not a lot of choice in that for yeah. those people. You know. I think it's often my issue with these sorts of conversations. Yeah. I personally agree with them wholeheartedly. I personally have the privilege and the choice yes. that I can work whenever I want and I get paid for when I work and that suits me fine. It suits me down to a T, actually. But I am very cognizant of that I have a privilege 
in being able to do that. Uh, and I sometimes feel like we have a tendency to just jump around and think that that applies to everybody, and it, and it doesn't. So it's an interesting article, but I would say, firstly, I would say, A, he's saying it from a position of privilege himself. Oh, absolutely. B, actually, I would also say what he's saying is not anything particularly new, um, but he's been around for a while, so it doesn't mean his ideas aren't new just because they were said last week. He may have been thinking them for a while. I want to add one point, though. I think that we are going to see a because we're seeing a growth of people that are working in hours that aren't the nine to five, we will see a growth of people expected to take on more of the care roles. Like, you know, not only childcare or, um, you know, children in the home, but also um, older parents as parents age or people, family members with disabilities. I can see a lot of that. um, Traditionally, the burden, if if I can use that word, has been, mothers staying at home who've done it rather than work. But we know now we're in a, a, an economic situation for, for most people that both, par- both parties in a, in a household have to work. Mm. And I can see um, people on flexi time or, you know, beyond the nine to five, whatever you want to call it, s- so that they um, can do the care role the rest of the time. And people say, oh, well, you're not really working. You can just look after someone. When it is, you know, you're still getting as many hours work done, if not more. This is actually a whole other conversation. I, I didn't add it to the list, mm. but uh, now you've mentioned sure. it, there was an article I read last week, I think, about uh, that uh, millennials, and I, I also discovered I'm a year short of being a millennial, so whatever that means, I have no idea. So what um, are you, a Gen X? No, I'm actually I'm one year early for being a millennial, apparently. What's No, what's the other one? Gen Y, oh, I don't know. Gen Y. Maybe I got oh. it wrong. I don't know. Who knows? Anyway, um, these things are very arbitrary. True, true. Uh, that um, they're not necessarily going down the paths that people are, are expecting. Sure. Just because they have this flexibility, everyone assumes, oh, women won't want to have children anymore, won't want to have families, and because they don't have to anymore and stuff like that. Mm. And actually, there's still a lot of tradition in the generation more than people expected. Yeah. Uh, which, I don't know. Anyway. Let's, let's move on. This is a big topic in itself, which is, I think, our favourite phrase on this podcast. Rounding off this theme of uh, flexible ways of working and things like that, here's one I think Kate posted. It's certainly not posted by me because I am a terrible at getting up uh, early, if that makes sense. <laughs> I'm not very good at getting up late, even though I want to sometimes. This is an article on entrepreneur.com. Sleep in and make millions. Why you don't need to wake up at 5 a.m.? And I'm hoping this, Kate, is about how I can either get robots to just do my work for me <laughs> or I can get real estate and earn money whilst I sleep. I'm hoping it's about that. Not quite. Okay. But, hey, they're both good ideas to be discussed. Look, basically it's challenging the idea that to be a successful entrepreneur, particularly for younger entrepreneurs, you need to get up super early and be um, on the job or doing yoga or drinking a smoothie or whatever you do um, so that, you know... The idea that your best work will be done before the sun comes up. And this is an idea that is particularly peripheral or um, proliferate, sorry, I should use the right word, on medium.com. I seem to constantly see articles about this. But this this is, I mean, this ties a bit back to how what we were talking with Paul last week. Yeah. About how uh, you get so many contradictory opinions on diet you should do, sleeping patterns you should do, exercises you should do, attitudes you should have, and they're also completely contradictory to each other, I think you have to just figure out what works best for you. Yeah, look, the the tenet of the article is they've interviewed a bunch of successful 
business people and entrepreneurs and they've all said, look, you know, we get up at nine or we get up at eight or what have you or later, but the work is done, we're well organised, we maximise our time, we use um, pockets of time when we're most effective to do those jobs that require that attention or that focus. And I think it's true. I mean, I think particularly for those of us that aren't working at nine to five or, or you know, uh, kind of structured shift who have to move around a little bit, you do need that flexibility. Yeah. I think, again, it links back to the last article, of course, in that if you have the luxury, yeah, this is the thing. Yeah, if so you don't have this children. talks about, oh, well, I work better at 8 a.m. I work better at... It's like, well, if you actually have the luxury, you'd be able to get up whenever you want and start whenever you want, yeah, great. of course. If you have to start work at 7 a.m. Yeah. and you're not a morning person, that's... You get used to it. <laughs> you know, tough for you. But it might uh, yeah. I mean... This is the the other thing I notice about a lot of the kind of singing praises of the early risers is they never seem to go to bed any earlier. No, I, I mean, I get up quite early, but we still go to bed at the same time. Until so, I... yeah, so you're constantly getting a lot less sleep than I um, in terms of hours. Men tend to need a little less, especially as you get older. Sure. Um, and men, women tend to need more. I can't actually remember where I got that from. It could be complete fabrication. But <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, I think it varies from person to person. But I think that is basically the, the crux of the article is do what works for you. Yeah. You're, make yourself, and this again ties back to our podcast last week, so have a listen if you didn't catch it, about optimise yourself to suit yourself. Absolutely. Really, and whatever works for you. Um, we had friends in Melbourne as well who had worked no more than six hours a day because mm. they said that was when mm. they were most optimised. And again, this comes back to the modern workplace. Uh, this, I think, to me, one of the issues of the nine to five on a Monday to Friday, nine to five, 40 hours a week, whatever, is actually when you do that, there is quite a bit of time built into that where they know and you know people are doing nothing. Oh, gotcha. They're making coffee. They're watching cat videos. They're faffing around. Well, they're they're talking chatting to the, their colleagues. Exactly. You know? So actually the nine to five is a very inefficient system mm. and I'm not saying it's, it's, it's wrong um, but actually when you tend to be more flexible, you tend to be working more in the times when you're working, I That's suppose. Right. You know what I mean? I agree. Yeah, it's I a think more it's, focused kind yeah. of way of doing things. I think if you measured the output from someone who worked, I don't know, nine to five and someone who worked... I don't know, 11 till 4 maybe, 11 till 3, um, you'd probably find a comparable workload. Yeah. So that was uh, just a roundup of a few topics that caught our eye from the week that fit, fit nicely into this sort of new world of working category. Uh, it's not a new topic, but of course just things t- came up coincidentally and it, it seemed a good opportunity to discuss it. So now we're going to uh, take a quick break for an interview with, uh, and I'm going to very, try very hard to pronounce the name correctly, uh, Abhinav Athana, Abhinav Asana, not 100% sure, but anyway, the CEO of Postman. Uh, we will obviously talk in the interview about what Postman is, but uh, if you're not familiar, Postman is basically a tool for developers, but also documentation people and testers to collaborate on creating APIs. It's a, quite a popular tool, and they are announcing some new features, and I actually use it myself through some of the work I do. So I was super excited to, to speak to one of the founders of the company and discover that and it's always nice when you speak to people who uh, work or started a company who you like and they turn out to be really nice people. It always mm. helps. <laughs> so so, so I enjoyed this interview. Uh, have a listen and we'll catch you after that with our second topic. 
I'm quite familiar with Postman because alongside my tech journalism work, I actually also do a lot of documentation work. So uh, I work with two companies who use Postman already, actually. So, <laughs> so That's awesome. <laughs> um, and yeah, some of my questions will relate to some of that experience because I actually had a Twitter conversation with your one of your VPs or your VP of product or something like that. I can't I entirely see. remember. Um, okay. about some limitations so <laughs> uh-huh. yeah yeah happy to answer no that's that's very interesting and always you know great to hear that uh you know uh, somebody's actually used the product <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. it's, it's good yeah. so but first just for benefit of um potential podcast audience uh tell me who you are and who postman what postman is and and etc uh, sure. So I'm Abhinav. Uh, I'm the founder and CEO of Postman. Uh, Postman is the complete tool chain for uh, developers that helps them test, uh, document, monitor, and publish APIs. In fact, you could do a lot of stuff with APIs. Uh, we have more than 3 million users, uh, about 1.5 million monthly active users across the globe. And uh, uh, Postman is... Uh, I believe, the standard uh, tool for testing and documenting APS. Okay. And when did you start the company? Uh, so that's uh, that's an interesting question for us. So the product uh, went out the first time in 2012. So it was a site project that uh, you know I created to uh, uh, solve my own frustrations with API development. And the company started in 2014 in Bangalore and in India, when uh, me and my co-founders Ankit and Abhijit got together to you know, solve the bigger problem of uh, API uh, development workflows. Okay. And what did you start with? Um, because you've, you've kind of got a, a multitude of pieces of the puzzle. You had the Chrome extension, the desktop applications, the platform. So kind of where did you start? So we had uh, we just started off with a REST client. So the first thing that we saw as a problem was, you know, having to deal with uh, the command line. So Ankit and I were working on a project at Yahoo in 2009, and you know we used to use curl and we'd send these API calls. Something would come back, and you had to parse those responses. It was a lot of pain. So uh, we started off with a basic REST client that let you send requests in a beautiful way, and you would see the response in a beautiful way. And the second thing it had was it let you see the request that you had sent earlier, just like your browser history. Mm-hmm. So effectively, it started off as a REST API browser, and it picked off from there. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I kind of have your current press release and future products in front of me, but what what sort of parts of the tool chain do you want to be in? Because even your documentation features are good. They're not mm-hmm. fantastic right now. We can, <laughs> we can talk more about that. But they're good. They're, they're, yeah. good. they're good. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, you've, you've sort of... You've got a lot of the pieces in the in the product already, but what else would you like to add, or are you thinking of adding in the future? Uh, sure, yeah, that's a really good question. And uh, uh, so I'll, I'll kind of give you the philosophy of you know why why we decided to like build all of these pieces, and uh, they were not 
you know, kind of like a disjointed decision. So we started off with this vision of a very smooth, streamlined API development workflow. So, you know, you start from designing an API, documenting an API, uh, you know, now we have this mock servers uh, feature, so you could create a mock server and decouple your, you know, development team. You have testing and you have monitoring and eventually, you know, taking this out in, in terms of published documentation. So uh, in, in 2012, when we started uh, Postman and eventually when we formed the company, we saw that all of these pieces are very disjointed. You know, people are working in their silos. Uh, they're not sharing information as fast as, that they should be. And the tools themselves that they are using, right, they're not really well connected. So uh, this causes a lot of friction in the development process. Now, if you go from design to documentation, you have to go through a set of tools uh, that you have to actually you know, put together. And we saw a lot of companies kind of building this expertise in-house. But when you speak to you know, thousands of developers, you see that this is being done thousands of times. Uh, similarly, for every other step, you know, I go from testing to monitoring, you know, there is uh, a lot of friction. So uh, what we saw as, as the core problem here was, uh, you know, A, people need tools to talk to each other. And secondly, the platform that they're using needs to be tuned for this workflow. Like the platform needs to be built on a layer uh, through which information flow across these silos as really, really smooth. Uh, so the first thing that we created was, in effect, the format called Postman Collections, on top of which this entire tool chain is built upon. And that helps kind of keep uh, this cohesiveness in, in the platform. So whatever you're doing in Postman, you know, for your development workflow, you would do it in a collection. So you would, you know, group together your API calls, you would write some documentation, you would write these test calls. And because it's the same entity, they are shareable across the whole spectrum of your organization and even the entire API ecosystem, right? Now we have folks who are sharing collections externally and asking their third-party developers to use their APIs. Uh, so uh, we, we knew the challenge that we were taking upon that you know, there are going to be tools who are going to be uh, a little more specialized in certain disciplines, but we are going to fill the gap uh, in. But the bigger value add that we add is, is essentially like, you know, this, this uh, streamlining of the workflow where we, once we eliminate this friction, uh, that's where you get the most value add, right? So on top of collections, we built out the collaboration platform and that's a real time collaboration platform. I save something, everything gets updated instantly. And, you know, now what you're doing is, you know, let's say if you're using Postman in a team where there are documentation writers and they're testing uh, professionals, you know, they are all kind of connected. You know, documentation is not a separate entity that each of them have to write. So yeah, so that's 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 been the core philosophy. Uh, we have now tools for uh, practically like the entire workflow. We are coming out with a lot of new things, and of course, you know, we are kind of getting deeper and deeper into fleshing out, you know, more parts of those individual tools. So let's just um, just for people who don't know Postman, let's just actually no, I'd like to come back to this in one second. Firstly, mm -hmm. I'd like to ask the question. Um, why did you decide to go for your own format and not use something like the open API formats like Swagger or API Blueprint or something like that? Right. So when Postman started out, right, these formats were very new. Okay. Right. Uh, Postman, <laughs> like we've been, we've been with, uh, you know, build, we've been building API tools even before when most of these formats existed. Mm -hmm. Uh and I'd say we had a larger vision for uh, you know, API development workflows than just, let's say, designing the API. Now, the, uh, the hypothesis with uh, 
these formats is that okay you know i'm going to i'm going to do this work once i'm going to write the spec right and everything else is going to you know magically fall in place right people are going to do these things uh you know they're going to choose the right tools and they're going to choose the right practices and this cycle we saw you know kind of keeps happening uh you know kind of like every decade you know every decade has their own format that they loved and liked and then eventually it became too complex and discarded so we like you know we're not going to focus on the format you know the format is essentially more of an organizing principle for our tools and uh, we're going to support all these formats which are coming around you know like for example you could import swagger into postman and with our postman pro integrations you could export raml and swagger and api blueprint but postman collections uh, have a larger uh, kind of effect on your workflow because you know we have like the testing stuff we have a whole bunch of other things that are just not there in these formats and we'll try to kind of keep interoperability in but for us to kind of uh, execute on our vision we we need to have postman collections as an abstraction for us and for the toolchain so in, in sort of a, a, a potted summary um postman currently has a combination of features and i'm just sort of going through the various sections here um you have the monitoring service which is uh about it's not about um it's not like an api management it's more about monitoring what people uh are using um not about charging them for the use there's other services for that is that something you might think of in the future becoming more of an api management service as well uh not not uh, i i don't think so yet mm-hmm. uh we have been focused from uh you know on our tool chain from the developer standpoint yeah. and api management is typically like you know what what a, uh, what, enter- what large enterprises kind of start off with yeah. so uh we see them as uh, uh, as as kind of like uh, complementary tools okay. uh, we uh, we already integrate with a bunch of them uh and, and because you know uh, most of them have actually started dropping formats through which they can import stuff and now our monitoring service addresses let's say the needs of you know like a developer who wants to make sure that whatever is being done on let's say another api uh you know it's like the apis that i depend on uh, they are being monitored right that's just one example now uh, api management you know covers a whole bunch of things and for a different audience we are focused on the developer um and then so triggered sort of the the in and out um of postman you have a, a about a dozen integrations um as i look through them a lot of them are about importing and exporting or backup and restoring maybe to be more precise collections into dropbox and various git based services uh and then triggers and things like that from um uh monitors actually also interestingly because i to be honest with you i didn't even realize you can do this but you do have an integration with apiomatic apiomatic however they pronounce themselves for exporting because i've actually been doing this step manually <laughs> so, oh, well, so you should use this integration so now, now <laughs> if 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 the one positive outcome of this conversation is is even just <laughs> that that would be amazing because i've been doing it manually for reasons which maybe I'll, I'll come to in a, in a second um yeah and some various uh, pager duty hip chat slack etc for monitoring various um problems maybe uh then you have the the sort of team side of things um with various access rights of what people can and can't do 
Um, so that where I've used this personally, we have a, a collection set up with a very small team. So um, we haven't used features massively. Um, and I then, would, of course, highly encourage that. Yeah, no, no, <laughs> it, it's more just so. the, the team yeah. based around this API is not very big. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then the collection itself, which I guess to describe just to um, listeners or my my readers, kind of how I've used Postman myself. So I have, well, as I say, we have a collection shared with a, a team. It's a fairly simple API with some fairly simple endpoints. There's a small amount of documentation describing what the endpoints do. Um, the developers can um, add in the, um, the the various methods and arguments and parameters that might be needed, but then we can test the responses. Uh, and then I can add some documentation, um, but things are kept in sync. So if they change an API, of course, I might still need to change some documentation based on what they've changed, but there's no pushing and pulling. It's all kind of in sync. And likewise, we can actually generate um, public or private uh, documentation too. And all of the endpoints can be tested based on um, environments as well. So I guess what piece of that puzzle you're filling in with your new announcements is that currently the testing for developers but also for end users has had to be hooked up to something else and now you're introducing a, a mock server where it's, it's all integrated. So maybe let me know more about the, the new mock server feature. Yep, that's right. Uh, so... Mock servers, you know, have have been like uh, like something of a target for us for a while, and you know we've been talking to developers and trying to find out, you know, what their workflow is, and you know, do they use mock servers? And what we found out was that everybody needs mock servers, but they just don't know, like you know, whether they would want to build it themselves, and people build like their own custom logic into mock servers. Like nobody was able to kind of get this agreement, at least you know, from the folks that we talked about. And as you're looking at the development workflow, like one thing we realized uh, since Postman's kind of gone out, right, is that people were testing on real APIs or on dev environments. And if we could decouple, if if we could create an entity, you know, that entity being the mock server, we could essentially decouple all these entities and still kind of keep them in sync. Uh, And what I mean by that is uh, you you could simulate your backend Right. You could say that, okay, this API is going to return this response, but it's not the real API. And uh, uh, your front-end developers can build uh, you know, an entire application of that fake API. Your back-end developers can uh, start using that as reference for uh, building the actual back-end server. Your documentation writers could essentially use that and, and you know, try things out. So it just makes things a lot more interactive and kind of decouples and parallelizes all of these uh, uh, development activities. Earlier, what was happening was that you would have to have a real API uh, or something that you set up kind of on your own and, uh, and, and try to work with it. Now, we've kind of made this, made this super smooth. Now, you could create a mock server backed off a collection. And because of the real-time nature of the whole service, the moment you update that collection, the mock server also gets updated. And uh, that makes the maintenance of the mock server itself very easy. Also, the mock server development is now within Postman. So wherever you are actually using the API, 
for documenting, testing, uh, monitoring, or you know whatever activity that you're doing, the mock server is kind of also there. And that that uh, you know we 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 are very very excited about this feature for that reason. That mock server, like you know, kind of coming back to the original uh, you know point that uh, uh, that we discussed. That how do you kind of keep all of this activity together? Now with the mock server feature out in Postman, uh, you could you could you know do that and be in sync uh, with the whole nature of the platform. Cool. So. Um... Are you also contemplating any future features for then taking the the whole kind of API development stage to production? Uh, any kind of, I mean, I guess you could use some of the existing integrations you have, but anything else you're thinking of adding in to make that even easier? Somehow, I don't know, implementing it live? Uh, that's 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 an interesting area for sure, right? Now that's where uh, uh, so so you know the way we see it is that Postman's entire uh, tool chain kind of complements that piece, right? So this is the piece that you're writing in uh, the entire tool chain that you have. You know, you're using your text editor, you're using Docker, you're using your cloud provider, and you're kind of putting together that entire API. And we have hooks into that flow, you know, like the documentation hook and a bunch of these other hooks. Uh, we we are seeing requests from our users, kind of on a day-to-day -day basis, to let let Postman uh, help them in that process. Uh, the collections format that we have developed, you know, we have refined that over the years. There are tighter uh, types for each of those parameters that you can describe in a collection. You could use them uh, in a way using the converter, for example, uh, to convert it to Swagger and maybe generate, you know, front-end code and uh, server-side code. So we are looking at these use cases, uh, but we we kind of want to, you know, put out something when we definitely, you know, have a real value add, right? Where it would seem like, you know, this definitely increases uh, the the you know the the value that I get from by an order of magnitude. So. Uh, I'd say, you know, yeah, we are closely watching, you know, how developers would be using Postman in conjunction with all the other tools that they're using for writing code, essentially, that's the piece. And I don't think anybody else has a good solution just yet, because, you know, whatever solutions have come up, uh, they force developers to think in a certain way, while we want Postman uh, to kind of be complementary to their thinking process. So, yeah, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. Yeah. Cool, um, yeah. Because the 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 uh, the area where I was having this this Twitter conversation with one of your staff, I can't actually remember who, um, uh -huh. because I, obviously I focus more on the documentation side, and yeah, I mean, documenting in Postman at the moment is not fantastic. It's okay. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. I found myself sort of exporting the file into Atom or something and then exporting it back a bit so I could have right. access to more tooling that I was used to. But it's it's not really where it's aimed at. I was just I'm just being picky. <laughs> <laughs> but but the thing we were interested in trying, so one of the companies that I am using Postman with reasonably accurately, we actually have, I think, three or four different APIs on different URLs. Um, and that's one thing we found slightly harder with the current tool chain to represent. So 
Um, when we publish the documentation at the moment, you end up with um, a very nice portal, but mm -hmm. it's it's kind of limited to one API URL at the moment, um, uh, and you end okay. up with kind of three three sets of documentation, basically. So I was kind of asking about the the idea of making more of like a dev center and mixing. Um, Got it. Mixing mixing things more cohesively with other content. Um, and whoever I, I spoke to said, a nice idea, thinking about it, here's a workaround in the meantime. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Which, which so, would, so actually, yeah. you know, that's more specific and I can answer that uh, on, with, with regards to our current roadmap. And uh, we have a lot of stuff coming up there. So uh, a bunch of things that we are working on is... Uh, a to represent larger and larger APIs uh, very effectively in Postman, right? So one of the things that people run into is that when you have lots of endpoints and lots of APIs, uh, your rendering performance for your dev center or you know your documentation, whatever you might want to call it, kind of goes down, right? So we have been optimizing that a lot. And this is leading up to a feature that we call multi-level folders in collections. Ah, so you could have yeah. an arbitrary nesting for your APIs, and that way you could, you know, you could you could just go as level as deep as you want and create, you know, whatever structure that you want for your API. Uh, and that's, you know, that's that's pretty much like our top feature request right now. <laughs> we are in making changes across the entire product line to support this. Like, you know, kind of like I'd say half of the team right now at Postman is dedicated for this feature. Okay. Uh, related to this, uh, especially on documentation, we'll be releasing uh, two new features. Uh, hopefully. You know, by uh, the first week of May, if, if uh, not sooner, uh, you would get the ability to uh, create examples mm, in uh, Postman. Yeah, yeah. So you could just you know start off in Postman. That actually is related to our mock server feature too. You could start a Postman, create a collection. You don't need an API. Write your request and write an example, and we'd we generate both documentation and mock servers for you. And the third feature request we get a lot is parameter descriptions. So right now you have to, uh, you know, like take the parameters out that you use uh, regularly, put them in Markdown. Uh, we have a prototype out that we'll be releasing pretty soon in our Canary builds that will let you just add descriptions to whichever field you have in your API request, and we'll generate beautiful documentation for you automatically. Uh, so lots of lots of stuff coming out, uh, and uh, you know, of course. Outside of the context of the podcast, I love to you know talk to you, <laughs> and uh, you know we we take feedback very very seriously at Postman, and uh, uh, you know the community has been driving uh, in a lot of ways what we build. So I'd love to hear from you in more detail too. You know how what specifically we can. Actually, because uh, at a previous company, I used one of your sort of competitors. Sort of mm -hmm. crossing over in, in some places, um, okay. and they're a lot more expensive for one, uh, and we didn't necessarily felt like we got our value for that. Um, they also weren't terribly receptive to feedback, um, <laughs> which is a positive to you. But one of the things they did offer was this ability to. So actually, here's an interesting sort of conversation around what you just said they did offer that ability to uh, generate uh, kind of like you have with the, the documentation at the moment of the ability to live 
for for users to live test and see what endpoints do, but also generate code snippets. But one of the uh-huh. interesting problems we had, which you may hit yourselves, but it's such a hard one to solve because you've no idea how it's going to be handled, was that uh, this company had the API, but they also had uh, SDKs. So uh-huh. just generating uh, standard JavaScript code snippets it wasn't enough because that wasn't how we actually wanted people to do it. We wanted people to use the SDKs. But, you know, for a company like yourselves, how on earth you would second guess all that kind of stuff is almost impossible, I think. So, so, but, so <laughs> no, we, actually, yeah. actually, you know, yeah. I'd like to answer that because this is something that we have been thinking about a lot. I'm not sure if you've tried the code feature in Postman that generates those uh, uh, snippets in about 20 plus languages. Uh, have uh, within oh, Postman, yeah, 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 yeah. yep, right. So, what we are working on uh, for the long term for Postman is modularizing a lot of our code base, so you could include plugins. Ah. And the way we see uh, Postman is, it's you know, at some point, the re- actually, you know, let me let me dial back a little bit. The reason documentation uh, doesn't work completely is because uh, you know you want to try out things while you are focused on your use case, right? You want to generate your code. You want to try out your use case. And documentation uh, pages are an aid to it. They are not like the end goal for someone, right? So the way we see it is that you're going to go to our documentation feature. You're going to click the run in Postman button, get the collection in. You're going to customize the request and generate your use case. And at that point, we want to allow developers to write their own plugins, which would be a translation layer from a collection to a request code. And you know, that would be part of the Postman app. So this way we kind of decouple all of these concerns and you would be able to write your own translation layer for your own SDK. Uh, It's a hard problem, as you said. It's a pretty hard problem because it requires a lot of refactoring at our end. But yes, that's that's what we eventually want as a uh, long-term goal for us, you know, because we would not know all the languages and all the SDKs in the world, right? At some point, we have to give the flexibility to develop. That would be super cool because I think even Swagger kind of has something a little bit like this, but it requires lots of configuration um, and in some very strange sorts of... Uh, I can't remember. I did look at it and it seemed uh-huh. unnecessarily complicated and then I kind of gave <laughs> up on it. But So it's not something that exists widely. So that would be a super cool idea. Um I want to ask you one slightly random, probably completely unrelated question. <laughs> uh, <sure. laughs> just address me. Um, uh-huh. So I, I just double checked uh, and I got the proof. If you have any kind of knowledge on this at all, you, you maybe you don't. It depends if you were involved in it at all. But your uh-huh. desktop applications, I can see, are built with um, Electron. Uh, That's right. And yeah. so how, do, how have you found working with that? Has it been really fast and useful or have you found it caused you problems that you wish maybe you'd just gone down a completely native path or how have you found the experience of using Electron? So we, we have been pretty happy with using Electron. I think that allows us to uh, provide an experience uh, to all developers in the world, right, effectively across all operating systems. And that... Uh, you know, goal is kind of worth it that you, if if not, you know, come uh, uh, a triple size team for each platform, uh, you have to, uh, you know, you, you have to have a larger team for putting out native apps. 
And the the bigger problem actually is not, you know, like the larger team. It's just so many moving parts and you have to have, you know, uh, stuff tested across each of these things differently. Like how do you test for behavior, right? So what we have been doing at our end is effectively uh, modularizing at each layer, right? So uh, a couple of things that are not so publicly visible uh, uh, is that the runtime on which Postman is based, the way we run collections, the way we... Uh, uh, the collection format itself, the way we manage collections in the Postman is uh, in the Postman app is open sourced, and that's built on Node.js. And we use the same libraries across uh, our apps. Uh, the Chrome app that we have had out for uh, a few years uses the same thing, and the same stuff we have been putting on the server side. So you get this parity across behavior that is impossible, I, I would say, to achieve with any other framework. Uh, uh, you know, other than like you know, sheer force of will that you know we're going to like make it consistent. So uh, of course, the concerns that are voiced out about Electron are performance and uh, memory usage. But my long-term uh, you know hunches and and I think the bet for the Postman team is that there are so many of these applications that are being built on Electron and uh, 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 you know there's just so much focus on on the whole platform that it's going to evolve much more quickly than uh, any other framework. And I believe the uh, uh, like the platform lock-in that you would get if you decide to do one native app, it's, it's just not worth it, right? Like just, uh, I, I mean, I'm, I've been using, you know, all of these three desktops for like the past two decades and uh, uh, it just sucks sometimes to not have the same application, right, across all these yep. platforms. Yep, so, yeah, and, uh, we've been we've been pretty happy with Electron. Personally, yeah. actually, I think one of the most interesting things about Electron is it opens up a whole new world of applications to Linux, especially. Um, and some people might complain, well, they're not real applications, but still, um, it opens up some much nicer graphical applications to the Linux platform, where often native applications have been, to be blunt, a little bit ugly. Um, so <laughs> yeah. it's it's kind of nice. <laughs> no, I I'm I'm completely you know uh, like for that idea. Like the web has been uh, you know that's where you've seen the most innovation in in the user experience and the user interface, right? And uh, uh, I mean Linux apps finally have like you know they they have that interface now. So there are of course you know uh, problems that one has to optimize for. You need to look at the user experience and keyboard shortcuts. But, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, you, yeah. you're not wedded to a particular yeah. platform for years. And that's a small right? thing to add. I, I, have, I have done some experimentation myself, and it's, it's a pretty good platform for that. But anyway, we're not, we're not here to discuss uh, GitHub's. Uh, <laughs> um, so obviously you have, you've already mentioned quite a few uh, new products, announcements, uh, roadmap features coming forward. But just to wrap up, is there anything else that you want to mention that you haven't covered that you want to make sure people know that you're up to over the next few months? Sure. So uh, one of the, uh, I, I mean, the one thing that I would like to mention other than the feature set is our enterprise offering that's in beta right now. Uh, a lot of uh, developers have been uh, asking us that, you know, we want to use this uh, product in an enterprise environment and we need certain features like single sign-on and audit logs. And that's something we announced in beta just yesterday. And uh, we'd like more and more developers to use it and adopt it across their organizations. Uh, and and of course, on the enterprise side, people will see a lot of other stuff too. 
Cool. Well, that is certainly a good and timely thing to mention. If it was only <laughs> yesterday, so <laughs> um, yeah, fantastic. Okay, uh, thanks very much for your time. Um, good luck with the future, uh, and yeah, please keep me up to date with some of the things we mentioned because I think. Um, whilst whilst what we've covered here is of interest to me, some of what you mentioned is of even more interest to me. So, <laughs> so, so be no, in- interested to, to, to see yeah. some of that in the future. Welcome back, and we hope you enjoyed the interview. So now we're going to talk about the issue of skilled migration and skilled visas. Um, we're looking at a couple of articles this week. I think you've got one first you wanted to bring, Chris. Um, I'm... I'm not actually 100% sure who listed. I think it might both be from you, but um, oh, well. the, we were discussing it earlier in the <laughs> yeah, week we anyway. Were. So we obviously you're probably aware, the audience, you're probably aware of uh, the changes in the US. Uh, I'm not sure if they've actually... Have they happened yet? Um, no, they haven't happened quite yet, or they've just happened. Anyway, uh, he wants to change skilled visas to restrict migrants, etc., etc., and in a classic copycat move, Australia decided to do the same thing. Uh, now, interestingly, because I know we both have sort of different facets of experience on the Australian perspective, mm. uh, because you used to work a lot with international students who would often be on these visas yes. and have some opinions on them that people may not expect. But also I, as a migrant to Australia myself, went through a similar process um, and decided to go down the, the marriage path. <laughs> but I could have gone down the skilled migrant path <laughs> reasonably easily. True. Um, but anyway, let's, let's, let's maybe start with the Australian perspective because a lot of people already know about the US one and it's also one that I think we could talk about more. Yeah, I mean, the Australian perspective or the Australian regulations... And not dissimilar to the US. Um, it's not the easiest place to move to, despite what you might see if you watch shows in the um, UK that about all these people wanting to move to Australia. There is, in fact, a list of what they consider skilled um, workplace jobs where they need people um, and where they say these jobs can be filled by foreign workers. There is also a list um, of qualifications um, as well for people that are studying. Let's maybe pull up that list. I'll see if I can find it because it's worth possibly going into some detail. We found a tweet here. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> source, just, yeah. Source of all knowledge. I'll try and make it a bit bigger. So, okay. So these are occupations proposed for removal from what in Australia is called the 457 visa. That's right, 457. Yeah, and it's interesting. Like, I'll, I'll read some of them out. Yeah, and I think you should. <laughs> I think these, these, these particular skills are based on the idea that there's enough people doing these jobs in Australia who are Australian, or conversely, that the careers perhaps are not as in demand. That could be the other one. So I'm just going to pick a few. Um, we have... Goat farmer, public relations manager, policy and planning manager, project builder, a wholesaler, procurement manager. Um, yeah, railway station manager. Bed and breakfast operating. <laughs> but also for the furries, also a boarding kennel or cattery operator. <laughs> Cinemarial uh, theatre manager. Actors and musicians. There's, a, there's actually a lot I think of there's art, some more here, what, yeah. what you might want to call the actually, arts. Uh, air traffic controller I find interesting. Radio journalists, they're ones I find more interesting. Working in shipping, a lot of, lots of engineering jobs, yeah. chemical Actually, engineering, I'm surprised about the engineering one. Industrial engineer, production or plant engineer, yeah. food technologist, author, interesting, 
Um, so there's a lot more scientists than I was expecting. Teachers. Yeah. Historian. Interesting teachers. Where's the teacher one? Drama teacher. A web developer. Okay. See, uh. my actual perspective on this was going to say that a lot of those sorts of roles would probably remain, but I'm actually quite surprised to see which ones have been removed. And it, what yeah. it will, what I think, what this will come down to very much, yeah, depending on more. people's jobs, yeah. is how they can define themselves into what role based on their. It's got to be firstly based on your previous work history and your qualifications. And these are all skills where you, presumably you need a qualification and you need a work history. So they're not just saying, oh, I'm going to move to Australia and become an author. No, it doesn't work like that. You've got to have books published. You've got to have evidence that you can make a a living from doing it. So before we go into the possible kind of the the potential effects of this in terms of our industry anyway, I'd just be interested if you could tell me some of the things and... I'd like you. I'd like our listeners to try to be a little pragmatic when Kate explains this because she has some balanced experience of this. Kate used to work a lot with international students in the university sector in Australia yeah. when the four five seven visa was generally easier, shall we say, yeah, to get. It was. And and you have some experiences of how sometimes that the outcomes of that sometimes. Yeah, I mean. I worked in both the tertiary, which is the university or the college system, but also the TAFE, which is more the technical schools. Uh, And I would see, basically, my role as an advocate was I would see students when they'd got into trouble, so when they were failing or they had some type of problem. And it was interesting because you would see... What, the way it worked in Australia was if you if you chose to undertake certain paths of study, like some of the technical courses, uh, then you could get a visa um, and get re- and eventually get get a residence permit. And some of the courses, it was quite interesting. Like you had things like drug and alcohol studies, welfare studies, community services, roles where you would think that you would need a, a certain amount of lived experience or because you, usually you, you have to do some type of interview if you do them you know at a, at a higher level um certain you know certain values perhaps shall we say in regard to things like feminism and women's rights and um discrimination of people based on sexual diversity things like that and what would actually happen and <laughs> it's an unfortunate one is I would be called to mediate between some of the students because they would have very different cultural cultural views. Like the situation of a student, an international student, calling another student a, um, a Nazi um, or because they were they were Well, German. world leaders are doing that right now. So. <laughs> yeah, because they, they were... Well, the student was Polish, remember, it was a bit weird. Mm. Um, or, or, you know, and, and the other student was gay, so there was this kind of counteraction, um, quite messy. Or you would get, you know, people that perhaps were coming from situations where you... I'm trying to be, you know, I'm not trying to pinpoint everyone in the world, but, you know, if you were going to, say, work in a, you know, domestic violence service you know, hypothetically, shall we say, you would assume, firstly, that you would be a woman, but that's not always the case, of course. Um, but secondly, you would assume that you had pretty strong views on women's rights and, 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 you know, to be fair, you can learn some of this stuff if you're going in. But you, some of the students, when you met them, they would say things to me like, well, I only want to see a man. <laughs> I don't want to see a, a woman to help me. It has to be a man. Um, I'd be like, really? Just, you're learning what? <laughs> um, that was quite challenging sometimes. So- this is actually the so the interesting thing with a lot of uh, this has been banned around the Australian news, but also it's obviously come up in the American news and it's coming up in the British news. Although I don't know, they're 
their system is a bit more complicated and that's because of some of the reasoning for Brexit, but that still is applying for the next few years, of course, about um, bringing back Australian values, making Australia great again and the same for America, bringing back American values. Mm. And the irony of both of these countries is they're both immigrant nations, exactly. of course. I anyway, know, know. but that's, that's, that's a whole other topic. That's our catchphrase, I think. Um, <laughs> but, but so it's interesting because often this is the, the, the thing said, is that we want to make... Australian values stronger and et cetera, et cetera. And right. in parallel with this, I think they're overhauling the citizenship test, which I took, actually. And contrary to popular opinion from most Australians, ironically, that it's all about cricket, actually, I found some of the questions to be quite uh, reasonable and quite progressive. They were about values. They were about uh, women's rights. They were about equal rights. They were about what is a democracy mm. and things like that. So actually, in my mind... I don't know what they want to change, but in my mind, the test I took uh, three, four years ago mm. was actually already pretty strong on values, to mm. be perfectly honest that with you. Good. In in a, in what, well, in some respects, in what I would consider in a good way. Sure. But the interesting thing is, of course, that if you come from a Western-style democracy, it's easy. I got 100% in five minutes. If you don't come from that background, then you will struggle with some of the questions a little more. And I guess this is, this is the, the, the point that they want to make. But it, as you said already, it doesn't mean those concepts can't be learnt. Just because you oh, come from a country that doesn't have equal rights doesn't mean you don't agree with them. You know? <laughs> and, and, like... and, we, and look, we, we know that sometimes seeing things in the practice is how you learn, you know. Yeah. When you see it work, at work and you see women that are in, in roles, you know, teaching and educating and doing all kinds of positive things, people go, oh, you know. And I think one of the funniest stories I had was um, in regard to, I just, I just thought of it when we mentioned the visas, um, the university I worked at had a, a, a rural college where they did things like um, farming and horticulture. Goat and farming. I don't know if there's goat farming. I saw deer farming. I don't think I've ever seen any deer in Australia. Maybe it was deer farming. I did did have a student that had an alarma farm. Not sure if that counts. Um, But um, she wasn't studying that, by the way. (laughs) Something completely different. But, um, yeah, yeah, there were all these... One of the things on the list was horticulture. And they had, like, I don't know, 200 people sign up for this course, international students. And they put in all these staff and they went out there. And the students all dropped out, the vast majority, in the first week because they didn't actually know what horticulture was. <laughs> I see. see yeah. I think this is this obviously... It's kind of there funny. are obviously in every system there are people who abuse it oh, and I there know. are people who use it validly. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's a very thorny issue to discuss in great detail because there are obviously uh, culture people who come from certain cultures that... by initially maybe don't match the the attitudes needed for a certain role in a different culture. But that doesn't mean it can't be learnt. And generally I guess generally it can be it can be demonstrated already. You know, mm-hmm. if if you are suitable to apply for a skilled migrant visa to be a domestic violence um counsellor, then you would hope that in the interview for that you could demonstrate that. You and would. where you're from and et cetera, yeah. et cetera, is somewhat oh, irrelevant. You of know course. what I mean? I agree. Um, I agree. But I think, yeah, the university systems in Australia didn't help because they made a lot of money yeah. out of bringing people in through courses 
do they go for these visas mm. who weren't necessarily the most suited? Yeah. So in some respects, a lot of the blame is at the over-commercialised education I system. But, they were cash yeah, cows, basically. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's, it's typical with a lot of these sorts of sure. things is that something or someone ends up abusing a perfectly reasonable system and then the wrong thing gets the blame, yeah. you know. And, and I'll make a, I, I would add something to that. I mean, there are, of course, there are plenty of examples where students have come from other countries or other cultures, however you want to put it, and studied something that's quite different to what their, you know, their culture is back home and done extremely well. I yeah. have many, many, many examples yeah. of that. Yeah. Um, we are not, I'm certainly not suggesting this is all students. God, no. The flip side of this uh, topic, mm. which is kind of actually what this article that we're linking to from news.com.au was about, is that whilst, okay, there may be certain roles on these skilled migrant lists that A, are not really needed anymore, B, uh, people may or be less or more suitable for. There are a lot of roles, and as we already said, we went mm. down that list. I'm quite surprised to see come off yeah, because. Uh, so the title of the headline of this article is "The Hundred Thousand Job No Australian Is Qualified to Do," and this is not that uncommon. That often these policies are about more jobs for locals, but there actually aren't enough qualified locals for the jobs. That's the point of these programs in the first exactly. place. And I would almost support them, these, these uh, rolling back of these programs more if in collaboration with them there was better education to fill those roles. But often there aren't. That's an unfortunate hard fact is that it's saying more jobs for locals but then they don't give the locals any more opportunity to get those jobs, <laughs> which uh, it's, it's a more long-term thing to change, unfortunately. It's easy to say, less migrants. And we go, yeah, well, people who support that kind of policy. But... Saying we're going to educate you better for a new role, that isn't something that happens overnight, unfortunately. That takes a little bit longer and it's harder to set up. Yeah, it's a, it's a long-term vision of education. And as we know, Australia historically, over the last few decades, has substantially decreased their investment into higher education. Mm. So that or it's become very commercialised. It's commercialised so that, you know, paying students will be able to prop up the rest. Mm. And, you know, most courses are... Have increased in in fees, so it's it's very it's not as expensive as America to go to university, but it is a substantial contribution. Yeah. But I mean, the biggest thing I got out of the article though is that um, the reality with with tech in, in Australia, in particular types of technology, not I don't mean every vertical or every kind of facet of technology, is that some of these areas Australia is quite slow in terms of coming on board. And I'm not even going to mention the MBN because that's, you know, Actually, I would, I would sort of agree and disagree with you in certain cases. Like the government, yes, which is an N, the NBN, so the National Broadband Network, is a government-mandated program. They are slow. Australian tech people actually tend to be reasonably well-educated historically. I'm not sure about the current generation, who sure. knows, but historically sure. they're quite well-educated. That's true, that's true. But I would actually say the bigger issue is that uh, Australia is... You can get quite well-paid... That's even not the issue too. The issue is that the sector is too small. That's my next. So a statement. lot of yeah, a lot of mm. skilled people leave mm. because they want to go to more glamorous places. Exactly. Um, and that's why there's a skill shortage because they generally actually go to America, yeah. which is it's, <laughs> it, it's not that people are not skilled. It's not there's more that there's not enough of them. Like if you were to look at um, IoT, for example, um, you've got sort of IoT across a lot of industries in Australia, from healthcare to um, you know industrial to building to mining, what have you. Um, 
but you know for it to go beyond that and get new get into sort of new areas you need a lot more people and there's what the article is concentrating on is firstly looking at senior the senior management kind of area people that are doing you know the upper echelon of the jobs the senior engineers the senior developers the senior growth marketing kind of people and they're saying, look, we can't fill these jobs with Australians because these are roles for people that have been in the industry not, you know, not five years or, you know, ten years, but sometimes 20 years or more. Mm. You know, these are people that have... And the other thing it does say is that a lot of these kind of experience, you learn on the job, you can't learn at university. Yeah, it's actually very true. And this is one of my... This is a a topic for a future three should be our catchphrase is uh, talking maybe we could have that as a sub is it a subtitle is that the right word for a a radio podcast talking about the merits of uh, boot camps and things like that how much do they actually really teach people but anyway so that's kind of our discussions for the episode Uh, let's round up with talking about um, what we've been up to in the past week what we're up to over the next week so uh, Kate anything in particular you want to talk about that you have written over the past week um, I've done I've done a bit of smart city stuff, talking about smart city um, applications, particularly looking at some of the challenges of smart cities um, and some of the downfalls. And I've looked at sort of the funding issues of who funds smart cities, whether it's government or um, you know university trials and things like that. I've also looked at the situation in Moscow, where um, over there they're using. Um, connected lights, like traffic lights and lighting, as a means of increasing their revenue from um, fines for fairly minor traffic inf- infringements, so that becoming a big money spinner and a lot of been a lot of, you know, dissonance about that. Um, I'm actually away next week. I am very jealous. I'm going to Madrid to the um, yeah, the Cato Location Conference. Hopefully you can interview a few people and I am, and I'm, I'll be able to tell you all about it because I've... I don't know that much yet, but it's got some super interesting topics yeah. and I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to learn more. I'm also in the process at the moment of interviewing a slew of VCs about how they're putting their money into IoT and what they're focusing on and I'll bring back some of those conversations via us so we can talk about that. Yeah. And um, the other thing that's raised its head, a couple of things that have raised their heads this week, if you like, one is the issue of names and jobs which kind of relates to our theme this week of jobs yeah and the issue of should developers or enge- um, people in tech be called engineers uh we actually have a speaker talking about this very issue next week yep next week hopefully we hopefully. haven't quite solidified it but hopefully yeah so likewise for me um i can't actually remember if i talked about these articles last week or not so you can just hear them again <laughs> Um, I my article for CodeChip on Docker for Windows, Linux, and Mac, a bit of a roundup of getting started on all those platforms, and real-time optical character recognition for mobile apps with the RTR SDK. But for a lot of um, a lot of last week, I was working on lots of articles, but I don't think so many got published. But I have a lot in progress. Yeah. Uh, and I am speaking at Quo Vardis, part of Berlin Games Week next week, about how technology and board games go hand in hand and the future of that which I'm looking forward to I've done the talk before in a short form and I'm doing it a bit longer this time so we're both quite busy at various events next week uh, we have made a few small changes to the website it's a bit work in progress one of the big ones even though you may not notice because a lot of them are a little older right now we have uh, finally merged in a lot of Kate's old 
blogs from when she ran a cooking blog and her personal blog posts from sort of 2016 back. And you'll start seeing Kate more on the website as opposed mm. to just me. That's kind of the shift of change of things. It's coming. Before. Yep. Mm. But in the meantime, you can listen to previous episodes of the podcast on gregariousmammal.com slash podcast. If you like what we do, including merchandise or donations, you can go to slash support. And uh, you could follow me on at Chris Chinch on Twitter. And I will talk to you next week. Any closing words from you, Kate? Yeah, I would really like to encourage people to come forth if they have opinions on what we talk about if they want to discuss any of the issues that we've raised um, or you've got evidence to the contrary, we're always really happy to have a bit of robust debate on the gregarious mammal. Or alternatively, um, maybe you're in a workplace and you think this is all sounding kind of interesting. Maybe you want to get interviewed yourself. Exactly. Contact us through the website or on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle, Kate? Kate underscore Lawrence. That's Kate with a C and Lawrence with a W. That's your catchphrase, isn't it? <laughs> I know, it's a great one. It's right? been an episode of catchphrases. Oh, yes. So, um, 